Yes, it's midsummer soon. I think it's tomorrow. Um, and um, that always makes me think of my homeland, which is Finland, which is much further north than here. And uh, in Finland, this time of year is really a time of very, very long days and very, very short nights. So um, the sun may go down in Helsinki, which is the very south- southern end tip of the uh, of Finland. Uh, it may go down about 11 o'clock and come up again at 3 in the morning. So it's very, very uh, short nights. Up in Lapland, the very northern part, the very northernmost point of Finland, the sun last rose up on 17th of May, and it will next set on the 26th of July. So it's called the land of the midnight sun, and you can see why. (laughs) Uh, It's just constant daylight up there. And... And the uh, connection is quite easily made with Vajrapani, who's here. Can you all see what's here? Okay, good. He's quite a bright figure. He's a, he's a very sort of uh, illuminating figure. He's got lots of light about him. And uh, I always think of him in those terms. Some people, because he's a wrathful deity, some people think he's quite a dark figure, and of course he is dark blue in colour. But he's also a very bright figure, and he sort of brings light, and uh, makes light in the world. So there's that connection, and also because it's a full moon puja, I'm coming up with all these connections just on the hoof here, Um, often Vajrapani, who... You can see he's he's standing on a lotus, as all bodhisattva figures are, either seated or standing on a lotus, which symbolizes purity, uh, the purity of enlightenment. Often on the uh, lotus there's also a moon mat, which is the symbol of the bodhicitta. And so Vajrapani has that as well, but also on top of that Vajrapani has a sun mat, which again brings that brightness, that light, that uh, very appropriate to the uh, time of of the year connection. So, tonight I'm going to introduce you to Vajrapani. Vajrapani, meet the guys. (laughs) Guys, meet Vajrapani. Vajrapani is a class of a bodhisattva, uh, and his, uh, the class is wrathful, wrathful deities. What you usually see when you come to the Buddhist center is you see peaceful deities here, lovely beings sitting on their lotuses, holding up little flowers or kind of books or something like that. And uh, that's one, one aspect of enlightenment, obviously. Kindness, the friendliness, the compassion, the um, uh, other regarding aspect of enlightenment comes through very strongly in those images. But there is another aspect to it, which is this, the wrathful deities. Um, They are, as you can see, very stocky beings. 
They're very strong and uh, powerful beings. And they don't generally sit down. They usually stand up. And that tells you something about the sort of energy that they embody. Um, as you can see, he's standing on this slightly, slightly sort of extended position with one leg sort of flexed on this side and the other one straight back. Uh, that's a kind of um, posture where you expect somebody to be quite alert. It's a posture of alertness. You're ready for something. You're standing there ready to act, ready to do whatever needs doing. If you ever practiced martial arts, karate or Aikido or something like that, that's your basic posture. You'll be standing like that, ready to uh, act. And that's what Vajrapani is doing. He's ready for action, and action is his forte. Yeah. Um, yeah, if we uh, look at his uh, clothing, which is quite scant, he's almost naked, but um, he's clothed in, uh, usually in a tiger skin. Sometimes it's an elephant's hide, kind of draped around his neck. Uh, the symbolism of that is pretty clear, isn't it? I mean, tigers are pretty fierce. Vajrapan is even fiercer. So uh, he's carrying the sort of uh, symbol of almost submission on him. He's overcome the tiger. He's overcome the fierceness of the human nature. And he's flayed it, and he's wearing it very proudly. The other slightly maybe disturbing element in his <laughs> uh, in his um, what would you call it accessories is a snake. He's got a snake coiled around his neck. Yeah, um, that's also a uh, a symbol in Buddhism. Snake, uh, it's ignorance, isn't it? Or is it craving? Or is it hatred? It's one of those. Uh, <laughs> he's grabbed the snake, and uh, the snake is not dangerous to him anymore. He's tamed it, as it were. He's put it round his neck, and he's wearing it like a garland. So he's quite happy with it. And also he's protecting the snake, because snakes have natural enemies. Uh, they are the sort of mythological birds called Garudas. And they really like snakes and they eat them. So Vajrapan is protecting the snakes, having overcome that, uh, that impediment. Um, he's got various jewels in this picture. In his arms, in his ankles, uh, around his neck. He's got a crown on his head. Um, that's fairly standard sort of bodhisattva gear, as it were. Those are the uh, merits of his actions displayed as something concrete, as jewellery around him. Um, if you moved into a little bit more um, extreme form of Vajrapani, the jewels would be replaced by bones. He would wear bone ornaments around his ankles, around his wrists, and around his neck and 
the crown on his head would consist not of five jewels, which symbolize the five Buddhas, but of five skulls. So he would have a crown of five skulls on his head. And these would symbolize the five skandhas. You may remember from your study groups that skandhas are what we as conditioned beings are consist, consist of. Um, they are the five heaps as we uh, refer to them. And uh, Vajrapani has just, using his insight, seen through the five skandhas, seen the insubstantiality of them, and has, as it were, annihilated them, has kind of made an end to them, has killed them, and he's wearing them as a sort of a triumphal uh, headdress. Uh, so everything in the picture has a meaning. And um, further, I think, there's the long matted hair, which is... a um, in India, the sadhus and the holy men wear that sort of hair. It's a bit like a sort of dreadlocks. Yeah. Sometimes they're sprinkled with ashes. Sometimes they're sprinkled with dust. And uh, the sadhus are usually going around with only a loincloth. And uh, they've got this massive matted hair on their head. And the ashes come from funeral pyres, by the way. So... Um, it's not just any old ash. Yeah. Then his hands do things. His left hand is held at his heart and he's doing this. And it's not just like yo. <laughs> yeah. This is a mudra. Mudra is a symbolic gesture. And this symbolic gesture means away with evil. It means uh, preventing uh, adverse uh, influences or trying to ward off evil influences. Yeah. Of course in Buddhism there's no good or evil. We are not sort of working on sort of that sort of dualistic framework. Uh, there are only evil people and evil uh, intentions but there is no such thing as evil as in Christianity, as in uh, other religions. So uh, the evil in this case is not directed against anything particular like a devil or anything like that. It's just directed against anything that stands in between you and the enlightenment. Yep. Whatever holds you back from enlightenment. Vajrapani is just saying, like, go away. And uh, that's where I, I've um, struck a bit of a sort of... Um, division of labour between me and Vajrapani because I visualise him regularly and uh, I always thought that if I visualise a figure like that well it's not all just up to me it's up to them as well, they should be doing something yeah, if I go into all this trouble of kind of sitting there every morning putting all this work why not so um, that's his job, he's keeping away the stuff from my uh, meditation he's holding things at bay and he's kind of leaving me to meditate he's kind of creating a bit of a bubble temporary bubble around me and uh, there I am meditating and he's sort of standing there and looking after me which is quite a nice thought 
Um, so that's the mudra in the left hand. The right hand holds the same mudra, but it's got vajra in his hand. There's a vajra in his hand. And uh, Vajrapani gets his name from this, uh, from the Vajra, yeah. So, what is a Vajra? It's one of those mythological things that don't really, I haven't seen one yet. You see the metal ones around here, but they don't really do what uh, they're supposed to do. They're symbols. And uh, Vajra is an interesting uh, weapon, really, because all wrathful deities carry weapons of some sort. They're quite threatening, and they're sort of uh, they're quite strong. And some of them carry like battle axes, and some of them carry clubs with which to kind of crush things, not people, evil influences. Uh, some of them carry spears with which to kind of pin things down. And some of them have bows and arrows. Some of them have sticks. And um, Vajrapani has a Vajra. And all these other weapons kind of make sense, but Vajra is a bit more nebulous. So Vajra is really usually translated as a thunderbolt. So it's a direct reference to natural natural phenomenon, ice lightning. And it's supposed to have the same uh, same power and the same penetration as a lightning. And it's just as quick. And it's just as powerful. Yeah. It's also, um, I like to think of it as a sort of, in adjective terms, there's a, uh, there's a word that I really like, which is adamantine, which means it's diamond-like. So Vajra's quality is diamond-like. It's very hard. Um, the diamond, there's a scale of hardness to materials, and diamond is number 10. I think it's called the most scale. And uh, it's the hardest material in existence. Nothing can touch it except other diamonds. You can't really scratch it without using other diamonds. Uh, so on this scale from 1 to 10, diamond is at 10, but I think Vajra goes to 11. Yeah? It's that sort of material. I mean, we're in a bit of a sort of spinal tap territory here, and the martial amps that go to eleven. But uh, it's the same thing, basically. Yeah, you take it one one further, and of course, it's much more effective. Yeah, it's got other in- interesting qualities. Um, Vajra. It's almost like a sort of semi-conscious thing. It's not just a lump of dead metal or dead material. Um, It is said that it's got three very interesting qualities. One is that it will always fulfill and accomplish the mission that is being given. So you can sort of take a Vajra, tell it to go and do something, and it will do it, and it will not fail. It's that sort of unstoppable force in the universe. The other interesting quality is that it will always come back into your hand. So once you've let it go and it's done its thing, it will always come back. So it kind of knows its owner. Yeah, It will come back and uh, be with you again. Uh, the third quality is that um, 
you can't use it light-heartedly. Yeah? So you would think that with this wonderful thing you could just kind of whack somebody who irritates you a little bit. Well, it won't. Matra won't do that. It won't go for light-hearted things. It will want to do something that's meaningful, something that's quite serious even, something that has has meaning. Yeah. So those are the qualities of the Vajra that he holds. Uh, so thunderbolt, adamantine weapon. It won't be used light-heartedly. It will always come back and it will always uh, accomplish its mission. It's that kind of weapon. And Vajrapani, um, there's two parts to that uh, word, Vajra, which is what he's holding, and Pani, which is hand. And sometimes it's translated as Vajra in hand. But I spoke to Sagaramati, who's studied these languages, and he says that there's an implied verb in the uh, word um, hand. So it would be more correct to translate it a holder of the Vajra because it's actually the hand is doing something. But that's a bit meek, so I think wielder of the Vajra is much better. Yeah, So it wields the Vajra in a kind of threatening manner. Um, there's an analogy I thought of that uh, pertains to that, which is, I'm not quite sure if you've uh, ever seen these old samurai movies from Japan. Uh, Akira Kurosawa's films where you've got these wandering samurais and uh, they go around and uh, sometimes they get into scraps or difficulties. And the legend, I've heard it said that when samurai draws his sword and starts wielding it, uh, he means actually to kill somebody. Yeah, You know you're in trouble if the sword comes out. Sometimes in the film you can see them just taking kind of a little bit out of the scabbard. So that it's like, are we stopping there? <laughs> but if it comes out uh, and it gets wielded, there will, be, uh, there will be victims. So it's similar sort of wielding with this. It's serious. It's meant, it means business with that. Yeah. He's not just kind of waving it around and uh, showing his new toy or accessory. Yeah. So that's the image of Vajrapani. Have I left out anything? Flames. Yeah. Hey? Flames. flames, yes, of course, flames. Um, yes. Uh, Vajrapani's forte is, or well, one of his, one of the things that he does really well and stands for is a breakthrough. A breakthrough in... Uh, in a way that you may have experienced in your life. A sudden change, where you've been doing something like, say, study, meditation, or some kind of pursuit for some time, and things seem to be going okay, but they're not going very far, very quickly. They're kind of gradually sort of building up. But then suddenly, at times, there's a sudden discontinuity and there's a sudden change, where things really change into quite a different level quite quickly. Yeah. So that's what we call a breakthrough. Um, you kind of, ideally, I mean, ideally in spiritual life, you would follow the path of gradual steps. You would uh, meditate regularly. You would gain the fruits of meditation regularly. You would 
proceed quite satisfactorily and you would get a sense of that. But in life it's not quite like that always. Things change and uh, sometimes things seem just a bit stuck for quite some time even, even if you keep meditating, if you, if you keep studying, if you keep pursuing your, uh, your interest. But then suddenly, at some point, there will be a change and it will be quite a dramatic change, often. So that, just like that, maybe overnight, things change and you're in a new place and you're in a new new uh, situation. So there's a breakthrough in spiritual life quite often and it's not uncommon at all uh, in terms of meditation, in terms of various insights, experiences, uh, in terms of understanding, in terms of um, all sorts of things. So uh, Vajrapani's flames symbolize that breakthrough. Yeah? It's like smashing through something it's almost like a sort of comet or meteor coming down from space to Earth at huge speed. And when encountering the resistance from the atmosphere, it was just start burn, burning. All the burnable elements just kind of evaporate from it and the friction is massive and uh, it's also purifying in a sense. It will leave, leave the non, non-burnable materials in there. So when there's a breakthrough... Uh, in your life it can sometimes feel like that. There's an enormous, kind of ginormous speed. Things are happening at great pace and things are moving very fast and you almost can't keep up with it. And you kind of almost lo- feel like you've lost control in some way. So uh, those flames are there to signify the breakthrough aspect of it. And it fits very well with Vajrapani being a very strong sturdy bodhisattva, he can handle that and he's the one to deal with it as it were when the time comes. Okay. I want to read you a couple of uh, excerpts from uh, text because Rajapani is not just a product of imagination as it were. He's got historical uh, presence. And he's the only Bodhisattva figure who uh, appears in all um, in the texts of all the three main schools of Buddhism, that is Hinayana, Mahayana and Vajrayana. So he's the only Bodhisattva that actually appears in the Pali Canon. There's no other Bodhisattva there. And I'd like to just read you the... Uh, Excerpt. It's quite interesting. Uh, The occasion is that the Buddha has been visited by a young Brahmin. The young Brahmin is a Hindu person and is very learned, and for some reason he's come to visit the Buddha. Um, The conversation turns quite quickly into a sort of argument about pedigree and progeny. Um, The young Brahmin is convinced that the Buddha is from a clan that is below them and comes from way below them. Brahmins are, of course, the highest caste in Indian society, and then Kshatriyas, the warriors, come after them. And Buddha is in the Kshatriya caste, from the Kshatriya caste, and the Brahmin is from the Brahmin caste. But 
for some reason, the young Brahmin has got in his head that the Buddha's forebears come from a slave background. And he's arguing this with Buddha. And the Buddha kind of listens to him very carefully and considerately, although he's quite insulting. Uh, but um, in the end, the Buddha puts forward another version of the story, and that is that actually his lineage is more royal than the Brahmin's lineage, which seems to come from a slave girl. And we pick up at this point. So the young Brahmin's friends are saying, let's not humble this Brahmin who's called Ambata too sternly with this reproach of being descended from a slave girl. He's well-born Gautama and of good family. He's uh, versed in the sacred hymns, an able reciter, a learned man. And he's able to give answer to the Venerable Gautama in these matters. Then the Blessed One said to Ambata the Brahman, and then this further question of uh, offspring and progeny arises, Ambata, a very reasonable one, which, even though unwillingly, you should answer. If you do not give a clear reply, or go off upon another issue, or remain silent, or go away, then your head will split in pieces on the spot. So it's not the Buddha we know, is it? Uh, he's not very friendly here, and he's not, uh, as it were, overtly compassionate. I think this is an old Indian way of saying that if you lie, your psyche will split into two parts. That's how I interpret it, but it's much more concretely expressed here. So, what have you heard? When Brahmins, old and well-stricken, and yes, teachers of yours and their teachers, were talking together as to whence the Kanhayanas draw their origin, and who the ancestor was to whom they traced themselves back. And when he had thus spoken, Ambata remained silent, and the Blessed One asked the same question again. And still Ambata remained silent. Then the Blessed One said to him, You had better answer now, Ambata. This is no time for you to hold your peace. For whosoever Ambata does not, even up to the third time of asking, answer a reasonable question put by the Tathagata, his head splits into pieces on the spot. Now at that, at that time, the spirit who bears the thunderbolt stood above and over Ambata in the sky with a ma mighty mass of iron, all fiery, dazzling and aglow with the intention, if he did not answer, there and then, to split his head in pieces. And the Blessed One perceived the spirit bearing the thunderbolt, and so did Ambata the Brahman. And Ambata, on becoming aware of it, terrified, startled and agitated, seeking safety and protection and help from the Blessed One, crouched down beside him in awe and said, what was it that Blessed One said? Say it once again. So Buddha goes, roll his eyes. So what do you think, Ambata? What have you heard? Blah, blah, blah. Who was the ancestor to whom they traced themselves back? And, Gautam, and Ambata has to admit that he was lying. He wasn't right. The Buddha was right. And uh, he wants to avoid, at all costs, his head being split into bits yeah. 
So when Ambata makes this admission, his friends grow into rage. So the young Brahmins fall into a tumult and uproar and turmoil and say, low-born, they say, is Ambata the Brahmin. His family, they say, is not, good, not of good standing. They say he is descended from a slave girl and the Shakyas were his masters. And the Shakyas are a Buddhist family. And then to cap it all, the Blessed One thought, they go too far, these Brahmins, in their deprecation of Ambata as the offspring, offspring of a slave girl. Let me set him free from their reproach. So in the end, he kind of, having pushed Ambata really far and kind of made him admit to his mistake, he still takes, shows compassion and kind of takes him into account, pulls him back from the brink and makes him okay with his friends. So that's the appearance of Vajrapani on the, uh, in the Pali Canon. He appears in Mahayana in the combination of the three family protectors. He, that is a combination that you see quite often in Tankas, of combination of Avalokiteshvara in peaceful form, of Manjugosha in peaceful form, and Vajrapani in wrathful form. Uh, if you see Tankas, they very often that have that combination of three. So that's the, um, the three family protectors from Mahayana. And I'd like to give you a bit more of a sense of the wrathful deities. Um, this is from the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And uh, this is the appearance of the wrathful deities. After death, you enter into a state called Bardo, an intermediate state. And before you take rebirth, you go through a process and the process involves seeing lots of very strange things like peaceful deities and wrathful deities. And the wrathful deities really are quite wrathful, so um, I'll read you one. So, O nobly born, listen undistractedly. Not having been able to recognize the peaceful deities in the bardo above, you have come wandering this thus far. Now on the eighth day, the blood-drinking wrathful deities will come to shine. Act so as to recognize them without being distracted. O nobly born, the great glorious Buddha Haruka, dark brown in color, with three heads, six hands and four feet firmly postured, the right face being white, the left red, the central dark brown, the body emitting flames of radiance, the nine eyes wide-opened in terrifying gaze, the eyebrows quivering like lightning, the protruding teeth glistening and set over one another, giving vent to sonorous utterances and piercing, whistling sounds, the hair of a reddish-yellow colour standing on end and emitting radiance, the heads adorned with dried human skulls and the symbols of the sun and moon. Black serpents and raw human heads forming a garland of the body. The first of the right hands holding a wheel, the middle one a sword, the last one a battle axe. The first one on the left hands a bell, the middle one a skull bowl, the last one a plowshare. 
his body embraced by the Buddha Kradeshvari, her right hand clinging to his neck and her left putting his, to his mouth a red shell filled with blood. The two deities standing with one leg bent and the other straight and tens, supported by horned eagles, will come forth from within your own brain and shine vividly upon you. Fear that not, be not awed, know it to be the embodiment of your own intellect. As it is your own tutelary deity, be not terrified, be not afraid, for in reality it is Varachana. Simultaneously with the recognition, liberation will be obtained. So this is a bit obscure, but the idea in the Tibetan Book of the Dead is that with these visions after death, they are produced by your own mind, and if you recognize them as such, however terrifying they are, you will be liberated. It's a simple teaching, but it takes all this working out uh, to make clear. Okay, I hope I've given you a fairly good idea of what wrathful deities are, what they do, how they appear, and kind of what their function is. And you can probably see by now that they're called protectors of the Dharma, the most generally. They protect the Buddha's teaching from, uh, from evil influences. And I thought I'd finish with... Uh, Banta's little invention, which is called the five precepts in tantric form. You're familiar with the five precepts as we usually recite them in the puja. But there's also a tantric form which is a little less known. And it's all to do with energy. And uh, I'll finish with this. So the first one. Do not obstruct the energy of any other person. So with deeds of loving-kindness, I purify my body. Do not drain the energy of others. Give freely of your own energy. This is taking the not given. Do not misuse energy. Stillness, simplicity, contentment. And use for any given purpose the energy appropriate for that purpose, not one which is inappropriate. And fifthly, do not allow energy to become turbid. Keep it, keep it clear and bright. And that's a nice place to end because we end on a note of brightness. Midsummer, lots of sun, bright bodhisattvas. Thanks very much.